Folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the kingdom of God. This is episode 76 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and it has been a while, hasn't it? Um, it has been almost a month since I've done an episode, and then it was a little sporadic before that for a little while. Um, lots of stuff going on this summer. Um, that I think has finally sort of stabilized a bit. So I hope to resume a more normal weekly podcast schedule from here on out, uh, starting, of course, today. And today, I want to, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into all, all the reasons why I'm doing this right now, but I think, I think we need to revisit, um, I say revisit, not that we've talked about this on the podcast, because I don't think we have, um, but it, uh, we need to talk about a subject that I think all of us are somewhat familiar with if, if, you're, if you're Christians, and it is, it is a subject that a lot of Christians have fussed about ever since the Reformation, and that is the idea of faith and works. Now, this is, this is not an unimportant topic, but I think it has been polarized um, by and blown way out of proportion by the issues of the Protestant Reformation. And that polarization has caused a lot of us, I think, to lose sight of, of, a, of a really biblical perspective on, on some of this stuff. And, and those things are what I, what I hope to try to sort out a bit today. So if you stick with us, we might have a good conversation uh, coming, coming your way in just a moment. Okay, so I, I want to make a, a comment or two um, first about. Um, so here, here's what here's what I want to do at the outset. I want to I want to give you uh, what I'm going to call the briefest history of the Protestant Reformation. Um, but you need to understand what what the word briefest means. I have never been accused of being particularly brief. I am I am wired in such a way that um, I see the complexities in things and. Sometimes I think, I, I know there's people that just want a sentence or two explanation about something, but there are lots of things that you just simply cannot explain in a sentence or two, okay? Um, sometimes to understand something adequately, you need to spend a little time, okay? Um, the Protestant Reformation is one of those. So I'm going to give you, uh, I'm calling this the briefest history of the Protestant Reformation. By the time I get through of it, because it's going to take, 10 or 15 minutes, and some of you are going to say, that's not really brief. Um, this is as brief as I can make it and still do it somewhat justice. Um, but I want to make a, a comment, and the reason I'm doing this, if we're going to talk about faith and works and the fallout that has come since the Protestant Reformation, you need to understand a little bit about what the Protestant Reformation was all about. And I have found that most Christians 
really don't have any idea about what was really going on that spawned the Protestant Reformation. So I want to make a comment first off about simply about the study of church history and why I think it's important. It is always true that the study of the past help, helps us understand where we're at today and why we are the way we are in some big ways. It is the search for a usable past. But we need to be careful about all this. Um, many people, I think, in the, in the pews today um, don't know, nor do they particularly care about people like Martin Luther or John Calvin or Huldrych Zwingli or really what anybody thought about anything much earlier than today. Um, many Christians today would uh, flat out deny that they have been influenced in any way by some of these people that lived 500 years ago. Um, however, tradition helps us get a sense of how the church has interpreted Scripture throughout history and the very natural questions that came up in believers prior to our own generation um, and, and some of the, how some of those questions drove theological inquiry, discussion, and even debate and practice and church dogma after that. For instance, how do we understand the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? All three are mentioned in Scripture, but... but there's not a lot of, not a whole bunch of really fleshed out theology about that. So Christians, early Christians, were trying to figure that out, right? Because do we have three gods? Do we have one God? How, if, if we call ourselves monotheists, how is it we have three people that we talk about as God, right? It's, it was a, it's a complicated question. And there was a lot of fussing, cussing, and discussing about that, Um in the early church. So, and that's just one issue. There were a lot of others, right? So we, we, we do well to try to understand some of that stuff. So I contend that knowing something about church history is important in understanding where we are today and why we are, why are there, why is there a Methodist church and a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church and a Baptist church or a Baptist church and churches of Christ? Why do we have all these different things? You're never going to understand that if you don't understand something about church history. And you might be tempted to think they're all screwed up. And you might be somewhat right <laughs> about that. Um, so there's value in trying to understand how we got to where we are. Okay, um, I come from a tradition or come uh, I'm part of a tradition. Um, I'm being vague about that because there's lots of questions about this. But I come from a tradition that tends to think that we just read the Bible and do what it says, and that we're um, what we believe today doesn't really have any links to any history at all after the first century. Um, we we read the Bible exactly the way the apostles did, we think, and we like to imagine that our churches look very much like they did in the first century. And the truth is that is just not true. And it's not true for any of us. We are all, to one degree or another, products of our past, either in retaining the ideas or practices of the past and bringing them forward, uh, or in the sometimes wholesale rejecting of those ideas and practices, which never actually ends up being quite as wholesale as we imagine. So there are, 
there are two really big mistakes or misleading approaches to interacting with church history. And we don't, we don't want to get off the rails on either side of this, okay? The, the first is to be just overly accepting of what we read, to just assume that when we read something that they had it all right and we should just adopt it absolutely without even thinking about it. If we do that, that prevents us from seeing the flaws and assumptions in, in their ideas and practices. For instance, an overly accepting view of the Protestant reformers might cause us to overlook the fact that they killed a lot of people. They killed a lot of Anabaptists um, in their war for reform. Well, that's not good, right? So we need to realize these people didn't have it all together, okay? The second mistake we can make is a corollary of that, and that is to be overly critical of who we read. And that, of course, prevents us from seeing the positives in some of those movements. Okay, so we need to try to combine a little bit of both distance and acceptance as we interact with church history. Because it's really challenge, uh, really challenging to have a, a neutral or balanced perspective of the Protestant Reformation. If you're a Protestant, and most all of us are, if we're, if we're not Catholics, we're Protestants, okay? And if you're a Protestant, you just tend to really want to stress the, the corruption of the Catholic Church and basically see uh, people like Martin Luther and maybe John Calvin and some others as knights in shining armor. But if you're a Catholic, um, Catholic historians will usually admit these days that that period in the Catholic Church was kind of bad, but it wasn't as bad as Protestant scholars make it out to be. And then when Luther came along, all he did was split the church. And all the problems thereafter, and there have been many, can be traced back to Luther. So Luther, Luther brought about division in the Western church. We're going to try to, to figure out something about all of that. Um, but it's clear, though, that, um, and we're going to try, try to be balanced about looking at some of this. It's clear, though, that by the beginning of the 16th century, the Catholic Church is pretty well corrupt. Uh, and it is corrupt enough that the call for reform is a fairly common theme all over the place. Right, uh, Martin Luther was not the first one to call for reform. Um, there were reform calls for reform and reform movements going back as early as the 1200s. Okay. All right. Now to kind of try to get to where I said we were going a long time ago when I talked about being brief. Um, I told you I'm not very brief, and as a defense, I will simply paraphrase Pascal, who said in 1657 something like. I've made this podcast longer than I did because I didn't have time to make it shorter. So, how's that? <laughs> All right. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, that is the 1500s, by the way, if you're not um, dialed into all that, was basically about, and I'm simplifying this a little bit, okay, but it was basically about the role of tradition and scripture in Christian faith and practice. And Martin Luther, again, was not the only one calling for reform. There were calls for reform in the Catholic Church 
going back to the 12th, 13th centuries. And prior to Luther, those, those reform movements tended to take one of two forms, okay? Um, there were moral reform movements, and those moral reform movements uh, said basically that if we can help, just help these church leaders grow and become more spiritual, then we will bring about reform in the church and things will get better, okay? So it focused on how to just make leaders better, more spiritual leaders. There were also what we might call administrative or legal reform movements, and those movements tended to say that um, we need to change the structure of the church and take away some of the power from the popes. And if we can do that, then we can really reform the church and make it better. Now, I want to just point out that those two type of reform movements, we see those today because there's a lot of calls today about trying to reform the church. I would argue that I, my life and work is kind of a part of some of those, all right? Some of, the, some of my, like I think the church needs reformed in many ways, all right? And if you look, if you, if you pay attention to, to how some of this dialogue is going on, you will see the same kinds of things. You will see moral reform movements that say, we've, the, the problem is we've got leaders that are just not very spiritual, just not very surrendered, just not very Christ-like, and stuff flows downhill. And because we've got leaders that aren't very spiritual, the churches are weak and ineffective and not very much what they ought to be. You also have administrative legal reform movements where you, you've got people today saying, the whole structure of the church needs to change. It's it's not like we just got to gut the thing and start from from scratch. I understand because of where I'm at and what I do. I understand both sides of those. Okay. Now, what you what you have to understand also though about all this is that in the Protestant Reformation, by the time Martin Luther came on the scene. There are, there are already a number of visions of reform already on the market, but Luther comes along, and what makes him different is that he initiated a different kind of reform movement. Luther initiated what we might call a doctrinal reform movement. And the big doctrinal issue of the 16th century revolved around the issue of justification. Now, a little background into all that. Okay, prior to Martin Luther, and by the way, if you're not a if you're not really dialed into church history, you need to understand that we are not talking about Martin Luther King, obviously, of the mid 20th century. Okay, we're talking about Martin Luther. Okay, who was a German Catholic priest. Okay, or Swiss, German or Swiss, can't remember. Not important. Not to this anyway. Prior to, to Martin Luther, people tended to think about the issue of justification as kind of a reunion with God in which real, true transformation took place in the life of, of the sinner. In other words, when you became a Christian and God justified you, you were actually really changed and you actually became righteous. Okay? The problem for Martin Luther was that he didn't actually see much transformation occurring in himself or others. 
And and you, and the, a big important piece of understanding all this is that Luther himself, this wasn't just some academic exercise that he was undergoing. Luther himself was a deeply troubled soul. And he was he was desperately frustrated by his own ongoing struggles with sin and his lack of transformation. So this was real for him. Okay? It wasn't just doctrinal, it wasn't just political, it just wasn't just about church structure. Luther really wanted to see people reflect the image of Christ better than they were, himself included. Okay? So when Luther talks about um, justification, Luther will talk about imputed righteousness, okay? Where you're still fully a sinner, but you are regarded as righteous by God based on the righteousness of Jesus. In other words, God reckons you to be righteous and he regards you as righteous even though you're a sinner. Sound familiar? If it does, it's because you're a Protestant. If you're a Protestant, you've heard that before. Okay, so that was that was kind of Luther's take on that. Okay, hang on a second. I need a drink. I'm drinking water now, if you care. I'm not drinking coffee because it is uh, noon here, and I've already had enough coffee for one day. So I'm drinking water now. Okay, so Luther again talked about imputed righteousness, where God reckons you or regards you as righteous, even though you're a sinner, based on the righteousness of Jesus. But that didn't work for the Catholicism of the late medieval period. Okay, the Catholic Church, instead of talking about imputed righteousness, they the Catholic Church talked about infused righteousness. Okay, which isn't just a change of status, but it's an actual change. Okay, infused versus imputed. Understand the meaning of those words. But here, but the 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 peculiars of this, the 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 nitty gritty of all this for the for Catholicism is that in Catholicism you became actually righteous by observing the the, the sacraments. Okay, and the Catholic Church has seven sacraments. Baptism, and, and we're not going to discuss these, I'm just going to list them. Baptism, penance, the Eucharist, which is we call the Lord's Supper, confirmation, marriage, the anointing of the sick, and what they called holy orders. Okay, you can look those up on Google if you want to know what those all are. Um, those were the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. So you became actually righteous by observing those sacraments. Okay, they observing those things actually changed you and made you righteous. So in the sacraments, you are becoming righteous. You're becoming fit for the presence of God and thus worthy of reunion with God, justification. Okay. So what that meant then is that for for the for the Catholics, and you got to understand this to understand what, where Luther's coming from in all this. And ultimately why there's such a war today between, often between faith and works, all right? What that meant for Catholicism of that day is that when God enters into a covenant with people and he commands you to participate in the sacraments, he is duty-bound 
then to give you the benefits that he is associated with those sacraments. It's sort of a contract. If you do this, I'll give you this. If you participate in these sacraments, I've set up the system and I will bless you in these ways, okay? In other words, when God set up the system, such as salvation or what we call justification, God is going to do what he promised to do if you perform those acts. And viewed that way, if we really understand the way the Catholics at that time thought about this, and don't just read it through the eyes of the Protestant Reformation, it is a system of salvation by grace alone and by merit alone. Okay, So it's not that the Catholic Church didn't believe in being saved by grace. They absolutely did. It is For them, it is, it is grace alone because you just can't do it yourself apart from these prescribed sacraments that God has given us. But the merit part comes in because unless you participated in those sacraments, God's going to cut you off from the system. Okay? Now, it's important to understand, it's really important to understand that at that time, Almost everybody agreed that human acts in and of themselves are of limited worth. By our own goodness, we just can't earn our own salvation. Okay, God has to take the initiative in salvation, and he does that, according to most people at the time, he does that by setting up this sacramental system. Okay, So it's a system of grace because God doesn't have to set it up that way. You know, He's giving us a way out. I'm trying to be fair and honest here with Catholicism, all right, because it's important that we do that. It's a system of grace because God doesn't have to set it up this way. He doesn't give us have to give us that option and that way to deal with this stuff. Um, but Luther is going to see that, and he's going to say, he's going to call bunk on that. He's going to say, that is a system of works, Okay, but it's really technically not. Okay, Luther wasn't exactly correct. But the whole thing got pretty well corrupted by the time of Luther. For example, and 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 if you if you know anything about some of the corruption in the Catholic Church during the Reformation period, you probably know this. Okay, and there there's more than this, but I'm going to mention this because this is probably the the piece of this that most people are familiar with if you're familiar with any of this. Um, the, piece of, the one piece of corruption that most people have heard of is that the Catholic priests were selling for money what they called indulgences, okay? Which basically, and, and I'm oversimplifying this, all right? I, I know I'm aware of that, so don't beat me up because of this. But it certainly, it, it basically allowed a certain degree of sin in your life that wouldn't count against you or jeopardize your salvation, Okay, if you if you pay enough money um, to the Catholic Church, they will give you an indulgence and basically allow you a certain degree of sin that doesn't jeopardize your salvation. So out of that whole milieu, Luther comes along and he says, this whole thing stinks. And you're using all these kind of categories and terms that make it sound like it's not works righteousness, but Really, it's works righteousness. The Catholic reformers will say in response, 
No, actually the system is 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 still good. Um, the bones are still good. There might be some some application of the system that needs to be tweaked and changed and worked out. We need to get a rid get rid of corruption, for instance. But overall, the system is still good, and it's based on God's grace. And they will point to passages in the Bible where there seems to be certain levels of rewards and punishment going on, and they'll say all of that is because of merit. And they're not totally wrong about that, by the way. And there's a whole lot more to all of this, okay? Um, I really, we're, we're 24 minutes in, folks, and I really have made this much more brief than I could have, believe it or not, okay? But the point I want us to see and, and the thing I want to uh, sort of lift up out of the, the mire of all this is that out of all that was born the modern battle between faith and works. Now, fast forward 500 years, and the way that this stuff has worked itself out in our churches, um, as, I, as, as I've alluded to already, is that we Protestants have kind of polarized ourselves into two camps. By the way, the Catholic Church has gotten much, much, much better in the last 500 years about a lot of this stuff. The Catholic Church, you can look and say the Catholic Church is still corrupt, and um, you you might be somewhat right. However, I would point out there is corruption in the Protestant churches too. Just look at the, the controversy the Baptist churches are embroiled in at the moment over sexual abuse, okay? Um, and some of the mess of all that. So nobody is free of corruption. But the way this has worked itself out is that Protestant churches have, have kind of, we've kind of polarized ourselves. Uh, and I'm talking now about division within Protestant churches, okay? Protestants have polarized ourselves into two camps, or at least two apparent camps, which I really don't think are as far apart as it seems because both camps will strenuously affirm that we are not at all saved by merit, okay? So in one camp are the people who will say, yes, we are saved by grace through faith and not by our own effort, but there are still some things that God requires of us. And sometimes some of the people in that camp will probably have a few more things on their list of requirements than are warranted. But honestly, I don't know of anybody in, in that camp who, who says or believes that we are saved by merit apart from grace through faith. Nobody I know believes that. I, you cannot point to a single Christian church who, who says that or believes that. Okay? The other camp has so doubled down on the faith-only side of things uh, to the extent that faith-only to them has collapsed to the point where they don't make any demands or requirements in the Christian life at all, okay? And if anyone comes along and, and says that anything is required, they start screaming bloody murder and um, they call it works righteousness, um, and, and most of the people also in, in that camp have a 
have kind of a definition of faith that that simply amounts to um, just an, a, an acknowledgement of a set of propositions. For instance, Jesus died to save you from your sins. If you just believe that, if you just kind of mentally acknowledge that, boom, you're saved. That's all you have to do, okay? And if you just acknowledge that fact, you are, you are saved solely on God's grace alone. Now, I, I see some problems in some of this. And the results of all this is division and animosity and most importantly, disunity in the body of Christ, which both I and Jesus are against. Um, also, I think we've, we've got to sort out a few things doctrinally on all this. I think, I think nobody is completely pure on all this. Um, I think nobody, I think neither of these two camps has has quite got it nailed down, although I, I tend to lean toward the first camp a little more than the second. But I want to talk about that. Um, so let's see if we can get a biblical handle on all of this that will maybe help bring a little peace into the mix, a, a little more um, certitude um, and certainty on how we handle some of these issues, and hopefully help heal some of the division that has occurred within Protestant Christianity and allow us all to move a little bit closer to the truth. Okay, with with all that in view, and just to make sure I'm not misunderstood before I go on, I want to make a, a resounding and crystal clear affirmation. And that is that we are, in fact, saved by faith and not by works, okay? You will never, ever, ever deserve or earn or merit salvation. There is simply nothing, nothing, nothing you can do that will suddenly make you deserving or worthy or, um, or, or allow you to merit salvation, Okay, so hear that, hear that loud and clear, hear that I've said that before we move on, because nothing I'm about to say is going to contradict that. Okay, so there's a couple of pieces to this that we need to sort of flesh out. One is we need to talk about a biblical definition of faith. We need to make sure that we understand what exactly faith is from a biblical standpoint. If we're going to talk about being saved by faith, we better get clear on what faith is, okay? And to do that, I want to I want to talk briefly about what faith is not, okay? Faith is not just simply about belief or what what some might call intellectual assent, okay? It's not just about acknowledging it's kind of mentally a given set of propositional facts, okay? Remember what James says, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw kind of heavily on a couple of verses in James here for a bit. James chapter 2, verse 19. James says, you believe that God is one? Man, that's great. But don't forget, even the demons believe that. Okay? And they shudder. Got that? Even the demons believe. Now, I don't know anybody who's going to say the demons are saved because they just acknowledge this. So what is the what is what is the difference between the kind of belief 
that the demons have and the kind of belief that we're supposed to have. What is the difference between the kind of belief that the demons have and the kind of belief that we're supposed to have? So think about that for just a second. They acknowledge that God exists, right? They agree with that fact. They will even, I mean, you read the Gospels, the demons, all they acknowledge Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that. They acknowledge that. So what's the difference? The difference is that they, the demons, while they acknowledge those facts, they are not surrendered to Jesus. They're not surrendered to God. See? Biblical saving faith is trust and it is surrender and it is allegiance and that that leads then to unquestioning obedience. Biblical belief meant trust and surrender and allegiance which produced obedience, okay? And all of those ideas are wrapped up in the biblical word belief or faith. It's the, it's the uh, biblical word, um, if, if the noun is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S is how we would um, Englishize that, that word. Um, uh, the, the verb would be pistuo, right? That's, that's the biblical word belief or faith. And, and you can translate that word as belief or faith. And it, and it is translated sometimes as belief, sometimes as faith. Um, but that word carried with it the ideas of trust and surrender and allegiance. In fact, if you want to do a deep dive into this, if you really want to study this out fully, I want to recommend a couple of books to you. Uh, both of them are uh, have just come out in the last couple of years, and they're excellent um, Matthew Bates is the author. Uh, he is a, uh, he's a biblical scholar. Uh, in 2017, he wrote a book called um, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And in 2019, he kind of um, wrote a more popular, like the, the 2017 book is, a, is a, a thorough, deep dive into, into this where he sort of he sort of he, well. What he does is he he defines biblical faith as allegiance, the core definition according to him of of the biblical idea of faith is allegiance. Now in 2017 he took that all that work and he he uh, repackaged it into a more popular level, um, um, uh, probably a little more accessible to a lot of people a book. And that book is called Gospel Allegiance, What Faith in Jesus Misses for Salvation in Christ. Um, and I, I will have links to both of those books in the show notes. If you, if you want to really see this fleshed out, read those two books. They're ironclad, okay? Um, you just can't argue that. The point is, biblical faith equals trust, allegiance, um, surrender, Okay, all those ideas are wrapped up in the idea of biblical faith. And for Martin Luther, way back in the Reformation, even faith is something that God gives us. Okay, If we believe, it's only because God gives us faith. And the righteousness that God gives cannot be brought about by our own free will or by our own power. Our very salvation is in the hands of God. And again, 
you, you, you can't forget that Luther has got a personal stake in all this. Luther's got this terribly burdened conscience. He's a, he struggles with lust. He struggles with some other things. And what, what's really driving him is he, he is seeking relief from his own troubled soul. So for him, if salvation can be taken out of his hands and placed into the hands of God, Luther is free because it doesn't depend on him anymore. Okay? Also, for Luther, his, his view solves another problem. It takes salvation out of the hands of the, of the popes, the papacy, and puts it in the hands of God. That's a good thing too, right? Now, so, that, so we've talked about faith a little bit, and, and I think hopefully we've got kind of lined out on a, on a biblical understanding of faith. Let's talk about works also, okay? Luther very much wants works to be present in the life of the believer, but he says those works cannot be the foundation of our salvation. It can be the fruit, but not the root. Okay? It's a little rhymey thing, so you got that going there. Works are not what we do to get salvation, but, but works are expected and necessary as an outgrowth of or, or, or response of faith. Okay? That's really important. So are they are they necessary? Yes, they're necessary. Right? If you if you think you have faith but you, but your life doesn't produce anything, it's maybe not a genuine faith. Um, so works are not what we do to get salvation; they're an expected, necessary outgrowth or response to faith. And the Spirit, as we yield to Him, is going to produce certain fruit in our lives. Okay, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Um, those things, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit kinds of things. Now, we need to go back to the book of James for a minute to help kind of round this out and finish it. James is really helpful here, I think. So we looked at uh, James 2, 19 a minute ago. It said the demons believe, um, right? In the verse previous to that, James 2, 18, James will say, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, people are going to try to separate this idea of faith and works. You have faith, but I have works. But James says, not so fast. James says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And his point is, how on earth do you demonstrate faith? How on earth is faith visible in the world? How in, in the world is faith um, persuasive or influential or helpful in the world around us if not by the fruit that it produces, the works, the good works, right? So James will say, um, you know, he'll, he'll talk about somebody um, um, struggling and, and some Christian says, well, be warmed and filled, and he says, that's not very helpful. He says, if, if somebody is cold or hungry and, and you say, be warmed and filled, and you don't give them food or give them clothing, what use is that, James will say, right? In other words, your faith is worthless if it doesn't make a difference in the world in which you live, if it doesn't produce some sort of goodness that you share with others, all right? So James says, show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith works or how, how faith is lived out in the world for the benefit of the world, okay? 
Um, how will your faith ever make a difference in the life of someone else without some kind of good works? See, James is making the point that faith and works are not two things you can just separate and parse out. You just you can't easily break them apart. They, they belong together. They're literally two sides of the same coin. Good Christian works or, or deeds um, are a natural and expected outgrowth of faith. They're part of it. So we need to realize, as Protestants, we need to realize that some of our discussion around these things involves like the reason we we go where we go in the way that we handle this discussion um, involves an, an, an Enlightenment era obsession with the mechanics and timing of precisely how salvation works that simply was not present in the early church. In other words, we have because of the way the Enlightenment taught taught us to to analyze and break down and and, and obsess over. The, the pieces and parts of things, we've we've taken that kind of impetus and applied it to salvation and think and and tried to analyze the mechanics and the timing of of salvation. But it would have seemed bizarre, I think, to, to first century Christians to ask the question, for instance, and we've obsessed about this, when precisely is the moment in the salvation sequence of events? Where, 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 where sins are forgiven. Where is that exact moment in time, that micro-nanosecond of time in which, in which salvation uh, it happens and sins are forgiven? We've obsessed over that. I think first century Christians would have thought, that's a bizarre question to try to nail that down. They weren't thinking about that kind of thing at all. Right? Was it, you know, was it was it at the moment when you when you initially believed, or, or was it the moment when you repented, or was it the moment of baptism? When? When? When did that happen? And we've spazzed out over that. Early Christians just didn't just didn't think about salvation that way. But in the 19th and 20th centuries, we've gotten way off the rails on all that. A lot of our churches have. And that rabbit trail has forced us to consider things as separate that really belong together. In the first century, faith and repentance and surrender and baptism were all regarded as part and parcel of the same event, surrendering your life to Christ. You, you believe, you, you surrender, you, you're, uh, you repent, you're baptized. That's all part of one thing. They're not... They're not separate events. They just didn't, they, they, that's the way they thought about it, okay? We have parsed those things out to be separate events and then we've gone to war over them. Silly us. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that more clearly than in the book of Acts chapter 16, verse 30, where the Philippian jailer asks Paul and Silas, and you can read that whole story there, there's more go that goes on than this. There's, a, there's some stuff that leads up to this. But they ask Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And boy, we've made a hay over that question, right? It's a good question. And Paul rightly responds in verse 31. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And of course that's the right answer. Of course that's the right answer. But remember that belief 
meant more than just acknowledgement of a set of facts. Belief meant trust and surrender and allegiance. Okay? And naturally, the, the, the faith-only people are always quick to rally around that one verse and pull it out as the, as the one and only absolute truth about all these things. It's the one, uh, the one verse that, that puts all others to death. Okay? But if we read the context of that passage, just read down another verse or two. Start in Acts 16.30 and read, read down through verse 34-35. What we'll see is that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house and they took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds and right away he and his family were baptized. And then in verse 34 we're told that that he, the Philippian jailer, brought them all into his house and he set a meal before them and he rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. For him, belief involved all that stuff. All that stuff. Acknowledgement of a set of facts, belief, trust, surrender, allegiance, baptism, and the fruit that it produced was hospitality. He made a meal for them. Come into my house. Sit down. Let me, let me serve you. Okay? So his belief led him to surrender, to be baptized, and to start exhibiting some of the initial fruit of the Spirit, joy and kindness and good works in the form of hospitality and service. So see, biblically, salvation is a package deal that involves surrender, allegiance, trust, obedience, and life change. I would say baptism is, a, is an essential part of that too. And that doesn't mean we're, we're, baptism is a work and we're saved by because all of a sudden we get baptized, we merit something, we become worthy. That's not what that is at all. It is an outgrowth of my faith because Jesus says, remember Matthew 28, he says, go out and baptize people. He says, make disciples first, and then what do you do with those, those surrendered disciples? You baptize them, right? Like that's all part of the same salvation process. It's not, a, it's not something separate. So, so we can't just pull those pieces out and then argue and fuss and divide over those things. N.T. Wright, who is probably the, the, the most influential New Testament scholar today, who I just love the guy, um, he says this about all this. He says, for Paul and the other New Testament writers, there simply is no clash between justi justification by faith and works. The two actually need and depend on one another. The point of justification by faith isn't that God suddenly ceases to care about good behavior or morality. Justification by faith can, cannot be collapsed, as so many in the last two centuries have tried to do, either into a generalized laissez-faire morality or into the romantic view that what we do outwardly just doesn't matter at all since the only thing that matters is what we are like inwardly. And then he says this in this paragraph. He closes with this, and this is sobering. He says, Those who over-anxiously defend a doctrine from which all mention of works has been rigorously excluded uh, 
should consider with whom they are colluding at this point. In other words, if you're going to take a position like that that is not biblical, maybe you're colluding with some forces that are not biblical either. So, to wrap this all up, faith and works are just not nearly as antithetical as we sometimes suppose. They both flow from a surrendered, trusting, obedient relationship with Jesus, and they depend on each other, and they feed into each other. And to say anything else is to do something that the biblical writers and the first century Christians never, ever, ever do. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. And I do intend to be back next week. As always, we'd appreciate it if you tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please uh, subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, any place good podcasts are found. And if you can just take a second and make a, write a review of some of the stuff, you, if, if you like it, it'll help others find it. All this stuff, this computer stuff, I don't understand it all, but... The more reviews you get, the more likes you get, the more it ranks higher, and the more people are then able to see it because they hide stuff that doesn't rank very high. So there's all that. Please visit us on our Facebook page for the Jesus Society podcast. Check out our website, thejesussociety.com, which is the official um, source for all the Jesus Society podcast episodes. Um, and as we continue to try and grow our audience, we're, we're loading all this stuff on um YouTube and Odyssey, and I've got links for all this in the show notes. Uh, and if you search for the Jesus Society podcast on either YouTube or Odyssey, you'll find us. If you'd like to support the show and my related ministry, click on the support TJS link on the Jesus Society website to find out how. Thanks for listening, and remember, you are greatly loved.